Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. This is Dr. Mark Shapiro. One of the hot button topics that affects everybody, um, no matter who you are, where you come from, what your interest levels are, what your education is, uh, is the issue around end of life care. How do we approach end of life uh, for ourselves, for a loved one, as a community? Um, and it's it's a huge topic. It's a it's a topic that comes up every election cycle. It comes up in the news. It, it, it's constantly kind of simmering in the back, and it's always making its way forward in different ways. Uh, and along with that sort of level of concern and questioning and, and um, you know, curiosity, we find really interesting thinkers and articles and perspectives that come out to help us sort of dissect this topic. And it's a topic that really does merit exploration. Um, I've actually gotten some requests online from people saying, hey, we need some content around this. So one of these articles was a, was a piece that popped up in the Atlantic uh, just recently. And the title of the piece um, was whose job is it to talk to patients about death? And it's um, a piece that was published August 18th of this year, 2015. I'm really excited to have the author of that piece, Ricardo Nuila, join me today to, to dive into this topic. Um, he does what I do. He's a, he's a hospitalist. Uh, and we just realized that we were in medical school at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston at the same time. We overlapped <laughs> sure. by a couple of years. Uh, we now do similar work um, as hospitalists. Uh, but he took the time to write a really insightful and interesting piece. So we'll have a link to that piece for sure on the site, but we're going to dive into it uh, in, in a bit of detail right now and really start to tease out some of the key pieces of this really challenging uh, and interesting question. So Ricardo, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Great being here. Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for inviting me, Mark. So let's start off with the with the first question. This is an article. Obviously, you have a really, really strong writing background. Um, you've you've received awards and you've been published in the New England Journal and McSweeney's, which I love, by the way. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, it, it takes a lot to sit down and put together a piece that, you know, is going to surface in a major publication with a very, very wide reach. So give me a sense first. What was the genesis of this? When did you decide when did the idea crystallize? I'm going to write this piece knowing that it is going to be polarizing. It's going to be challenging. It's going to really put some opinions, you know, on the front burner. Um, when did that really come together for you to sit down and crank this out? You know, sometimes I think with the best pieces, reality just conspires and just shows something to you, like right in your face. And you say, I have to write something about this. And, what had happened was that um, I was invited to be a part of a panel hosted by the Hastings Center, which is an ethics think tank, uh, ethics organization located in New York. They were uh, just, you know, trying to get a whole bunch of players that had some end of life care experience throughout the country together at Northwestern University for a day conference to talk about how to improve end of life care for hospitalists. And I, and you know, I was doing my work as a hospitalist at uh, the county hospital in Houston, and um, you know, and, and the, I would just say it like that. It was just you know a week of work. I went to, I finished, and I went to this conference in Chicago. Met some great people, and then the topic came up of you know end of life care, which you know, I've written articles about. I care about, 
And it just made me reflect back on the week that I had worked before that. And I said to myself, oh my gosh, I, even though I care about this topic, even though I've written about it, I can see how I was negligent with one particular patient. I, and, and the patient had stuck in my mind, but not in the same way that um, it's, he had stuck in my mind, not because of what I had failed to do, which was to talk with him and connect the dots, as I say, about his Im- impending death, but just because of our conversations. And, and it wasn't until that conference that it was crystallized to me that I said, wow, I mean, I'm a person who wants to communicate this with patients. And, and even I had messed up on, in this regard. And, and so I said, I have to write about this because I think that this is, you know, there's a reason why we're having this conference and, and I'm, I'm not, a, you know, and, and this happened. So that's, that's how reality just conspires. These things kind of clash together and you say to yourself, I have to write. So that's, that's the genesis of it. You know, I think that one of the, the most powerful effectors of change that we have within medicine and within society I'm a little bit biased, but I think that mm-hmm. a lot of people might might say that might agree with this. The physician who writes, the physician who writes from a place of um, uh, self investigation, compassion, um, and reflection, who can take the experiences that they're having and write them in a way that everyone can access. That is a hugely powerful driver of change because. It, it opens up one of the most opaque worlds that we have, which is the practice of medicine. People, I think yeah. their understanding is better than it was, but it's still, it's hard to grasp exactly what happens, you know, particularly in an emergent setting or an urgent setting. In this piece, I mean, you're, you're very open and honest about your experiences with this patient and his experiences with you. Uh, and it, it makes it, it makes it very, very compelling. Yeah. I mean, it, it I think for me, it's always just been communication with patients is, is chief, you know, um, I have to, I, you know, I, I do approach it as a writer in the sense that I'm always looking for, for words that are said, I'm always looking to see that, um, that we communicate well, that, that the words that I say are, are precise, you know, and, 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 and I'm always kind of seeing what the impact are. That's just, what the impact is, that's just the way that I think that um, people who write tend to think. So, you know, with this particular patient, it was, it, it was definitely something to, to be reflective about afterwards. Um, I don't know. When you talk about choosing your words carefully, there's one word in this piece that's italicized, and that word was ownership. So first, yeah. did, did you italicize that, or was that the editor's choice? That was, that was my choice. It was your choice. I had a feeling um, that was your choice. This is why this article is so unique, this idea of ownership around the issue of talking to patients around end-of-life care. What I see and observe right now is there's obviously a big push in medical education for physicians, not just for physicians, but healthcare providers in general, to develop a language around how to have these difficult conversations. And it's everything from how to get the room ready to uh, how to open the conversation, how to show empathy, uh, how to tease out the important things. And that's all, that's all very, very important. I mean, we need that part. But what it misses, in my opinion, is 
putting the onus on everyone on the healthcare side, when you have a patient who has an illness that is going to be a challenging thing or may, may actually prove to be mortal or just someone who maybe is just getting a little bit older and needs to have these conversations, who is going to do that? Do you see that there's a space there? Is that kind of what drove you to italicize that word ownership? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think I approach medicine often with the idea of personal responsibility, Mm -hmm. you know, um, who's going to do this if not me, you know, and, and, and I guess there's, um, there's a sense that it has to be done because you, if you put yourself in your patient's shoes, you wonder who's going to get this vital piece of information, you know? And, um, I think in, in medical education, I agree with you, Mark, I really do. I think that, um, we're trying to set the stage for these conversations to occur naturally, but we're not uh, pushing people to say, all right, you know, I've identified something that is grave here, which is somebody is dying or somebody is suffering. Um, and I need to do something about it. Um, I think that the, I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but so I, I tend to go toward this idea, this model of ethics and personal responsibility of, of just, you know, being able to ask yourself, um, you know, what, what am I seeing here? What am I really seeing here? Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give you an example. Yesterday, um, I was, I was uh, admitting patients in the hospital, and uh, it was just obvious that one of the patients uh, was, was dying. He, he had this a cancer that had spread throughout his body and was overtaking his liver, and he had come in, and the, on the chart was written altered mental status. But it was very, very, very easy to identify in the chart that, you know, this, this was a slow progression that despite multiple chemotherapies, he, the, the liver had been failing. And, you know, I just with the, his wife was sitting there in the emergency room with him and it just, it just, you know, you just take a step back out of your role as a doctor. You look at, at the setting and you see him, you know, very, very thin unable to converse with anybody, his wife there. And you just, I just, you just ask her, you know, like, what do you think is, you know, do you think that he's dying? And she said, yes, you know, she, it was, it was almost cathartic for her to say, yes, thank you for admitting this. And I don't know. I I just think that there is a level of personal responsibility to, to be in that situation and to pull your, pull the training that you've pulled into of, for symptom management and to say, well, what's really going on here? And, and to see the, the arc of that patient in a different light rather than um, the way that we're sort of trained, which is, okay, uh, this patient is here for shortness of breath, so I have to take care of the shortness of breath. No, I think that it takes different training than medical training to stand back and say, well, this patient is here not just for shortness of breath. The patient is here for multiple reasons. We are naming it shortness of breath. Um, but the patient is here for a lot of reasons. Chief among them is, is that patient is dying, and we need to, to help this patient in the process of dying. I think you've identified the key collision that makes this so difficult, and that is we have the training to identify this, to walk in the room and say, oh my goodness, this person looks like they really need end-of-life care um, and we need to provide that. We're obligated per- to provide that. But 
the collision comes where it takes courage to bring that up with the family. And I say yeah. that because when you do this, you know, you, you've, you've gone to the classes and you've had good role modeling and you've thought carefully about how you're going to approach this and you've used the best evidence to develop your style of discussion. Mm-hmm. When you bring this up, there is no way to know what that response is going to be like. And it can be really intimidating. I've had the whole spectrum in my career. I've had exactly what you described where you open that conversation and it is a moment of catharsis and tears are shed and hugs yeah. are exchanged and decisions are made. All the way to the other one where I've been shouted out of the room. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and that's, I mean, but that's that's what you courage is the exact right word. Because yeah. you have to you have to just say to yourself, I think, that um if it's the right thing, then it's gonna be hard sometimes. Yeah. You know, it's gonna yeah. be hard all the time. But um but your job is to really give um your best clinical judgment and to and and and, and to tell the patient what you think is going to happen. And because there's a lot of different ways that things can unfurl after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I don't know. I think that it's, it's just important to be, to be honest about that and forthright. And it does uh, take courage to, yeah. to tell somebody, well, I'm sorry. I know that this is going to be very, very hurtful, but this is, this is what I, I think is going to happen. You yeah. know? Now, how do we then bridge that potential disconnect? Um, how, you know, from the, from the community side, you've written this piece. It's obviously not targeted towards physicians. It's targeted towards a much, much wider audience. What are steps that people can take to at least not have it? It's always going to be hard to hear. It's never going to be an easy discussion to have ever. And it shouldn't be. Yeah. But mentally, psychologically, as a family, as a community, when you're counseling people, what are what are suggestions that you have that people can and skills that you can utilize so that we can just start to peel away at least a little bit of the discomfort around this topic? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm biased about this because this is the field that I'm in, but I I just really believe in 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 communication, and I think that the ways that you heighten those communication skills is through reading a whole diverse set of works. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, I think, I mean, I'm a writer and I'm a fiction writer. And so I'm always kind of delving into uh, putting myself in a different character's voice, understanding the world through a different character. Um, I think that that's helped me with these conversations because it, it, I, I really am trying to understand um, how words affect a different person that's not necessarily myself, right? Um, and and I think that so I, I I'm I'm one of these people that really believes that we need to broaden the education of doctors that we need to to really um, work on those communication skills and through things like you know classes that delve into major works of fiction and things like that. I know that that sounds crazy to some people, but to me I I feel like it's helped me in my communication skills with patients. It's helped me uh try to think about uh what patients would be um what you would be concerned about. Um it's helped me pick up on context clues within conversations cuz I think that you're always looking for those if you're if you're trained through um, a literary literary lens, I don't know if that makes sense. Or no, not. it makes perfect sense, and it's important to remember that 
I think for, for providers as well, that that's going to be the sort of lingua franca that people yeah. from outside are going to address this. And it's not going to be the language that we use. They're not going to be saying, okay, doctor, right. I'm, I'm expecting empathy from you. That, that, exactly. that, that's, that's, that's not, that's not the language that they understand this in. It's the language of, you know, having grown up watching ER and yeah, scrubs exactly. and, exactly. you know, her hearing about in the last presidential election, death panels and all of this stuff. Exactly. That's the language that people are going to understand this in. And I have to be honest, as, as, as much as I engage with trying to, you know, learn about this material, teach this material, even coming up with curriculum around this material, the language always comes off as stilted. It never yes. comes off as sounding oh, like something that somebody who comes to the hospital in San Diego directly from their job doing whatever with their family in tow is going to understand. No, definitely. I mean, it's it because it is a it is a different language, and I mean, I've always seen medical school as you know learning a different language, and then residency as going to the country of the language that you've learned, yeah. and yeah. like just integrating yourself in that, and then you become really a citizen of that. And and I think that what we need is for doctors to be citizens of multiple lands, not just the land of of medicine. And so you have to remind yourself of the language that people understand and, and, and that they're moved by, you know, because I think that that's one of the things that came up uh, chiefly in this, in, in this meeting that we had in, in, in Chicago to help end-of-life care is trying to get people to use real words, trying to get med- doctors and nurses to use real words because we have to know the impact of our words. I've had, I've had multiple even arguments with, um, with other physicians on the floor because one of the words that they say is is the word that sticks with the patient you know and 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 it can influence a lot of the decisions it can influence the outlook um so so i think that our job is really to be aware that there are there are that our words are powerful um and and we have to know the impact and we have to be able to uh curtail that language when when we really you know when when delivering this kind of bad news i think i I wonder if that's not the kind of key piece then that drives the the sort of the discomfort and the fear and anxiety that that we'll experience when having these conversations that you're going to fall back on what you know um and you can I, i guess obfuscates maybe a little bit harsh but you can couch things by using jargon and using oh yeah medical lingo um, you're relying on something that you're comfortable with that you know that most likely your patient and their family is not going to even understand, let alone be comfortable or uncomfortable with. And it's a way to take cover. Well, j- jargon is so often a defense mechanism. Yeah. You, you can't really explain things, right? And so you use jargon and, and it just kind of ends the conversation. I mean, I... I don't. I don't really have a financial planner, but I've talked to financial planners, and when they start throwing out like lingo that I don't understand about like the markets and everything, I'm just like, okay, this conversation's done, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, and I'm thinking that, and I'm, but I'm being nice on the surface, right? But uh, it's just, I think it's similar in medicine when you hear when you hear it come up, um, and 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 you have to be on guard and you have to be listening to your own words. I think is the point because. Because, like we said, we are citizens of that of that world, you know, where language is, where med- medicine is the primary language spoken. So it can come up, but then you have to listen to your own words and say, "Wait, I'm," or, or even I've I've taken to apologizing to patients, saying, "I'm sorry," you know, like what I meant to say is this, 
really look for understanding in the patients. But um, yeah, I, I mean, we I tr- we try to in the, in the course that I teach at University of Houston in the Honors College, we we go through a lot of examples of jargon utilized, and we and we really delve into what it means and if this is something that should be you know that should be said differently because um, it's difficult. You can really slip into it. I, I absolutely agree. And I think that that's going to be the, the key piece for the next generation of physicians. And obviously the current generation, cause we're doing this every day is to continue to move away from that. I mean, I, you know, when I started medical school, that was part of the conversation that was part of the role modeling. However, um, a lot of the, conversations that would happen in the hospital were heavily steeped in that sort of jargon and uh, medical lingo simply because a lot of the docs had not been trained that way Um, and they were very used to doing it a certain way and it was neither bad nor good it was just that was the way it was done and it's taken kind of uh, an awakening I think to start to change that and it's for the best Um, but it's definitely taking time to kind of percolate to kind of percolate through do you feel like in the years that you've been in training and then practicing, is that process accelerating? Are we getting better at this? Are, are we getting more facile and comfortable with it? Or are we still pretty far behind the, behind the eight ball? I think, I think that we at least recognize that it is an issue, but I think that the medical training has not caught up with it. Um, and I think that when you look at systems that are utilized, I think that the systems reinforce the the use of 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 this lingo and jargon and I'll give you an example it's like uh, electronic medical records um, you know there is there is a big push to keep documentation uh, in order to bill properly to keep documentation at a certain level so that you every time that you you know that, that you write a, a history and physical, you make sure that you have all of the billing components there. But what that's done is as that's created a sort of, you know, um, a format, you know, a, uh, a template that is used. And that template is just so nonsensical when you, when you step back and you read it, it's, it's stilted language. It's not even, it, it, it's, it doesn't flow. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't really talk about um, what I like to. I mean, it doesn't talk about the narrative of the patient. It just talks about the narrative of the symptom, you know. And so, um, that that what that leads to me is to um, a way of analyzing problems, which is very much directed at you know achievable goals or symptom management rather than to the narrative of the patient. And so, um, you know, I think that that's the, one of the issues we have, we, we have this, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm writing an essay right now where I talk about this concept of algorithmania, you know, where, hmm. where it's just like every, you know, if you look at medical journals and whatnot, everything is trying, everybody's trying to come up with the new algorithm, but what's the, What's the risk of all these algorithms? I mean, why are we thinking um, it, it? Algorithms don't necessarily lend itself lend themselves to the complexity of um, of human beings in where you could have multiple things occurring at once. You know, um, it kind of leads to one answer, one solution. That's that's a reinforcement of the system. Of yes. the system is to to to, to try to get 
get patients taken care of quickly, you know? Um, Algorithms serve the variables that are there to build an algorithm around. And it can never account for, you know, the patient's preference or the fact that the patient is stressed because of something else or they're newly homeless or in so many parts of what we do, I I think that's a fabulous title algorithm mania. We're going to, you're going to have to come back on when that article comes (laughs) out so we can dive into that. But, um, especially when it comes to end of life care. And that's one of the issues that I have when we talk about design and curriculum for these conversations, there's such an important foundation. You've got to have a toolbox. There's no question. You've got to have a toolbox, but again, it's never going to be that stepwise format. The conversation's never going to go from A to B to C to D. Right. You know, you're going to have a family that's going to be sad and you you might be sad and you might, you know, be thinking of something that's happened in your life that that rings true and it, the conversations they, they it doesn't work like that. Yeah, it does it, it never it I mean and and if you do it like that, you're just not attuned to like the hints that come up yeah. in the middle of conversations, in the middle of human interactions that tell you a lot about the patients, what they what they want. It just just like any natural conversation, you know, it's a back and forth, you respond to fluctuations in volume, you, you respond to, to body language. That's how natural conversations uh, occur. But um, medical education has, has sort of gone after trying to be completely thorough at the risk of that sort of um, that, the, that naturalness, but also like what could come out of that natural conversation, which is clues about how to talk with patients. So it's going to take faculty such as yourself it's going to take interested medical students it's going to take societal kind of commentators to raise this expectation then it sounds like to have care providers at every level be more in tune to what's happening in that moment what they're seeing in the room um as opposed to okay when i when i first start the conversation i sit down i make eye contact then i do this then i do this then i do this and everything's going to be fine yeah, I mean, I, I think that it also is going to, you know, involve demand from from patients. You know, I I would hope that they they get doctors that can talk to them naturally, and patients say that's the kind of doctor that I want, and 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 that demand manifests, and 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 that pushes, you know, the establishment to say, well, we need to. We need to start rethinking how we educate and how we select for uh, some of our physicians because I think the pendulum has swung toward a selection process and an education toward a little bit more of this of the algorithmic slash you know like um, well for lack of a better term scientific mm-hmm. minded. But I think that you know I think that the demand is gonna is the pendulum will sw- will swing toward the demand for. People who are much more um, able to to communicate better, yeah. you know, and communicate in, is is a is a very um, it, it's it's a complex process. It's not just saying the right words; it's saying the right words at the right time in the right manner. You right. Know, so. Well, the the thing about it too is, is I think that it is going to take some level of introspection and interest from. Uh, the healthcare side as well. Yeah. And there was a line in your, in your article where I think it was at the panel that you spoke about in Chicago, where one of the panelists had, had lost um, their husband. Yes. And their quote was, no one told us anything. Yeah. And I think you can, te- you can, you can unpack that a little bit. If you were to ask the docs that were involved, and this is not to impugn 
anything that they did, right. I think they would say, you know what? We had multiple family conferences. We worked really hard. We involved our palliative care team. Yeah. But somehow that communication didn't click. That person didn't say that no one spoke to us. They said no one told us anything. So they just heard white noise. They just heard jargon and lingo, perhaps, I'm, I'm guessing. But somehow all of that energy and focus, I mean, I'm sure that everyone on that care team tried really hard, but they didn't make that connection. And that's that's the problem. I, I, I totally agree. I think that that's the, the I think part of it is, is that like you said, I think you used a really nice word before courage. There, there is a courage to be blunt and I don't mean blunt in, in, in the way of like, you know, being, you know, uh, heartless, you know, but, but blunt as in language or as a better, better yet is, is, is like crystal clear about certain things. And you had, there, there has to be a courage with regard to saying, uh, there's, People need to be courageous in order to use language that they think is crystal clear, because other because I think that this team was probably, um, if you, like you said, if you ask them, they would probably say, you know, we had multiple discussions, and and but they, but they probably found it hard, just like all of us find it hard to say the words "you're dying," you know. Um, it's a different thing to say, like something. You know, I'm I'm concerned that something is going to happen. To saying, I think that you're dying. You're in the process of dying. Um, it does take a little bit of courage, also. I, I um, want to continue this discussion around clarity, uh, decisiveness of language, and building on this concept of courage a little bit. Let's take this to a part two. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here. Please come back and join us uh, for part two. We're gonna continue our conversation with Dr. Ricardo Nuila discussing ideas around end of life care. Uh, so join us, and we'll be right back. Uh, so Ricardo, stick around. We'll come back for part two. Sounds great. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.